the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. It's that most wonderful time of the year. The Lloyd's List editorial team have been making a list. They've checked it twice. They've been very busy finding out who's been naughty or nice this year, and it's ready to go. The Lloyd's List Top 100 annual ranking of the most influential people in shipping is here. Now, this is the 11th edition of the list that makes no bones of its subjective assessment of the real influences in shipping. And the stories and personalities shaping shipping have, in many ways, changed completely over that period, but the rationale remains resolute. Each year, the editorial team, over the period of several months, enters into an often tense debate. I say debate, ladies and gentlemen. I'll spare you the gory details, but it is often a brutal gladiatorial affair. But nevertheless, these brave truth-seekers fight it out amongst themselves, arguing their cases to ultimately produce the most important list of the year. We've said since the start of this that the influence in shipping is not just a question of size, money, or the number of ships you have. It's about the people and the decisions that they make, and that remains the case. As subjective as this list obviously is, taken in its entirety, the stories of these top 100 figures and the sub-lists of top tens in the individual sectors, is, I think, the real story of shipping. It reflects the dynamics and tipping points in the market each year that are directing the industry, and read as such, it is, in my very humble opinion, a worthwhile project and a rip-roaring read to boot. But before you delve into the list, which is available in its entirety online now for Lloyd's List subscribers, I thought I should bring you some of the editorial voices behind the list and explain our rationale and the story of shipping this year. I start this week with the Top 100 editor, Linton Nightingale, and chair of our editorial board, Janet Porter, then bring you the view from Asia with our China editor, Sishin Shen, and a quick word on the big-ticket regulatory influences from our professional IMO botherer, Anastasios Adamopoulos. I hope you enjoy the list. All fan mail should be directed my way immediately. Any complaints about the rankings, angry calls from delicate egos who feel they should be higher in their list than their competitor, please give Linton Nightingale a call. He'd love to hear from you. Um, well, I think 2020, I mean, obviously the big, the huge issue that's impacted not just shipping, but all walks of everyone's lives is coronavirus, which is obviously something we couldn't avoid. The global ca- uh, pandemic is, um, you know, the world has adapted, struggled and toiled to get to grips with the virus and shipping has been the same. But I guess the overall take here, and I'll kind of, if you haven't yet seen the rankings, I'm going to give it away here. Um, our number one this year is kind of linked to this, which is the seafarer. Um, obviously, Amid all of the upheaval, one constant has remained. Uh, Ships and cargo have continued to move. Um, The world has remained fed. Vital supplies and PPE have reached the places that need it most. Um, Of course, this is an industry-wide effort, but it's those at the coalface of shipping, I guess, that deserve the utmost praise, which is why this year we looked for the seafarers as number one of the top 100. And that was a unanimous decision by the Lloyd's List editorial team. Uh, it w- involved a little bit of discussion, but I think we were all in agreement pretty early on this year that the seafarer needed to be at the top of the list. Janet, I mean, from your perspective, you were involved in that discussion. Do you think we got it right this year? 
Oh, absolutely. I'm delighted to see the seafarers as, as the at number one. And it's not only because they've kept supply lines going, they've kept the you know, logistics industry functioning, but also they've had their own challenges. And I think the um, the Maersk Etienne case highlighted that, you know, they also go to the rescue of migrants and then find themselves caught up in some political standoff. So it's not only that they've they've been keeping they're keeping transport systems going. They've also found themselves unable to get home because of all sorts of local quarantine restrictions and you know, lack of flight. So I think it's an absolutely well-deserved number one. Um, to me, some of the key themes during, you know, within the rankings are are the importance of cargo interest charters. Now we've got two big um, charters in the top ten, um, represented by Cargill and Trafigura. So I think that says a lot about the changing uh, face of the industry and how it's not just the shipping the shipping providers but the the buyers of um, shipping space as well mm. well we've seen that as a trend for a few years but i think certainly this year it's really become very apparent that the big influencers within the industry are not the ship owners themselves it's the cargo interests, as you say it's the regulators it's the uh, customers of shipping that are demanding not just uh, you know a shift to zero carbon uh, emissions but increased transparency, increased reliability. Uh, they are pushing much of the digitalization investment within the industry simply because they require the industry to do things differently. And that in itself is having an impact in terms of the business models. And what we're seeing at the top end of the industry, companies like Maersk, is uh, you know companies that are not looking the same as they once did. We're looking at new business models coming through and that sort of integrated supply chain really having a sort of an influence at the top end of this list. I guess the question is, you know, are we going to continue to see ship owners on this list in the in the way that we have traditionally thought of them? Or are we going to see the rise of the consolidated conglomerate and the, the corporatized shipping entity really take over the power and the dominance of the industry? Well, I think the latest list shows two quite interesting developments. One is um, someone like John Fredrickson is, is sort of slipping down the list. I mean, he was number one at some stage. We've also got Emmanuel Lauro, who was number two at, uh, a few years ago, is now, I see, a number 50, I believe. So some of the old traditional ship owners are maybe going down the rankings. But then I'm, I'm sort of really pleased to see people like Grimaldi. We've elevated them quite a lot. And I think Grimaldi is a sort of traditional, old-fashioned in a way. I hope they don't mind me saying that, shipping company has forged a very different business model for itself, but also um, Emmanuel Grimaldi in particular is prepared to stand up and speak out on behalf of the industry and doesn't mind being outspoken um, in contrast to some of the others. So I think it's good that you've got companies like that um, are still quite prominent. And if I could just say a few things about Maersk, because people will say, oh no, they're, they're up there again, but try to make out, this is actually like Maersk the brand. So it's not just Maersk line, but you've got Maersk tankers, and also Maersk Broker. And these are all sort of top of their field. And so it's really bringing together the companies or the businesses that use the Maersk brand. They're quite distinct, but obviously all linked by one or through one family. Um, so I think there are some quite interesting themes coming through. And, um, you know, so you still do see the ship owner, to get back to your original question, but there will be, I think the cargo interest will become increasingly more important. I think you're right. I think I don't think we are quite yet writing the obituary for the uh, traditional private ship owner. I think we've got, you know, really good, solid examples of traditional shipping in this list still. 
uh, it'd be interesting to see their trajectory over over the coming years, of course. But uh, Linton, let's uh, take a, a, a yeah. look at, a little bit at the other end of the list, because, you know, further down, it was very, very difficult, actually, to make sure that we were covering the full breadth and depth of what shipping really is these days. And, you know, we've said it before in, in this podcast and many other forums that shipping is often misconstrued as a, a singular uh, industry or even a, a sector it's 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 really a sort of series of sectors that are only vaguely linked in many respects but you've done a, a a pretty fearsome job of trying to inject the full range of characters into this list give us a gives an idea of of, of who else we've got on the list and, and what that represents okay so um trying to look at the new entries obviously the, the biggest entry was for seafair but one interesting entry that has come into the top 20 this year. It's essentially a re-entry, actually, because it, it did come up, I think, three or four years ago now. It was the Hacker, which at the time, I guess, raised a few eyebrows. But there's been some, again, some pretty high-profile hacks this year. Uh, most notably, there's been, again, I think it's now most of the top container lines have now had their online, um, online systems compromised in one shape or form. Um, so this year we had CMA, CGM and MSC, and then of course there was the IMO as well. So this year we thought, given the spate of these high profile attacks, that's another new entry that we've got in. Um, off the back of that, I know you were talking there before about some of the big ship owners, and we should also mention the Greeks as well. Uh, one person who's come in this year of interest is uh, the sister of John Ad- Angelakousis, who makes her debut this year a quiet ship owner she's made her mark in the lng sector over the last couple of years and she's one i think of nine entrants we also have and the container shipping side we have zim chief executive ellie glickman who's kind of exploited the fact that uh, the israel the israeli carriers um niche global offering yeah so there's, there's lots of new entrants but there's a decent spread this year and I'd like to just pick up on what you said, Linton, about Zim. I don't think a few years ago we would ever have expected Zim to be in the top 100. We just probably most of us thought they wouldn't be here anymore. And, and yet they've found the, there's a new business model. They've managed to carve a niche sector in the market, in a very, very competitive market. And also, I mean, I was just flicking back through a few of the old top 100s. So there's people who aren't there. Really, we had Han Jin right up the top not so long ago and the, you know, the Korean industry. So it really, if you look back over a few years, the makeup of the top 100 has changed. And, um, you know, maybe from year to year, it doesn't look so so much changed. But I think if you look back over three, four, five years ago, you can really see what's changing in the industry. It's interesting. Looking back, you see the themes that have dominated previous years. And you mentioned the hacker, uh, Linton, and the, uh, the importance of cybersecurity in this year's story. Uh, it was only going back four or five years ago that we had the pirate, of course, um, which, you know, we may look back nostalgically at the uh, the, the good old days when, um, you know, piracy was the main problem we had to worry about as an industry. But actually, that's now coming back. And I'd be very interested to see whether or not um, the uh, the physical security aspects of, of shipping is going to be reflected in next year's list, given the the recent rise of, of violence off the uh, the Gulf of Guinea and the West African coast, because, you know, that is one of the perennial problems of shipping that I think has probably been overlooked this year as we focus more around greenhouse gases and uh, and the impact of COVID. But uh, that's certainly not going away as a story, and I would assume it will be reflected in, in future lists again. I think one of the other um, 
things that might raise a few eyebrows. We've got the Sade family um, some way above the Aponte family, even though MSC is a much bigger, is a considerably bigger container line in terms of capacity than CMACGM. But I think we just felt that Rodolf Sade and his family really are trying to make a difference. They really are, you know, they're, they're prepared to, you know, go with LNG, even though, though they know it might not be the final solution. They really are trying to show leadership. MSC, for various reasons, has been a little bit low profile during the past year, but that could change, definitely could change next year, because they've just got Soren Toft joining as a new CEO of the cargo side. So I think people might ask why we've got these rankings, but I think we can argue that case. Well, hopefully by reading it, the uh, the readers will uh, at least understand our rationale, even if they don't agree with it. It is rarely a list that uh, everybody agrees with, and, and, and neither should it. Uh, it's designed to provoke uh, debate and conversation. On the point of uh, MSC, uh, the point that I would make there is that this is a reflection of the past 12 months, uh, more or less. Uh, and we can only really consider activity and stories uh, over the last 12 months. I would assume that if you were looking over a longer period, uh, figures like Gianluigi Aponte would probably be significantly higher in the long term influence they've had over the industry. Oh, no, I uh, totally agree. I mean, he, he's still regarded as one of, if not the best ship owner of his generation. He just knows exactly when to buy and sell ships. And, you know, he, he absolutely understands the industry inside out. But... Um, you know, there will be change for all sorts of reasons at MSC, and it will be interesting to see how Mr. Toft settles in as well to a company that's got a very distinct corporate culture. And I think another thing it's worth raising is who else is missing. Of course, in the you know, a few years ago, there have been far more German ship owners, um, and there are very few now. I mean, that really does show the, the, the shift in the balance of power between maybe Greece and Germany. And um, with a lot of Greek ship owners here, but um, not that many, many German ones anymore. Well, you have offered me a, a useful segue into the uh, the next section where I'll be talking to Sishan Chen, our China editor, about the uh, persistent dominance of China at the top of our list. But for now, Janet Porter, Linton Nightingale, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Thank you. So welcome to the uh, podcast Sishan Chen, our China editor, a regular on the podcast. I wanted to get your view on the top 100 this year because as we're looking at the seafarer and uh, the global pandemic and COVID, there are obviously a huge amount of uh, big ticket themes in the list this year. But I didn't want to uh, pass by without looking at the dominance of China. Um, You know, we've seen the rise of China over the 11 or 12 years we've been running this list. Uh, really come up through the ranks and uh, it's certainly not going away. Give us your perspective, uh, you know, as China editor and somebody who's written the majority of the uh, the, the really big ticket Asia entries, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see them disappearing off this list of influence anytime soon. How about you? Well, um, I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, we're talking about this because uh, obviously, uh, you know, uh, the, the the state power uh, of China in marine time uh, sector uh, can 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 cannot be ignored uh, always. Uh, if we look at you know the major players, uh, coastal uh, China merchants, they are you know uh, two of the world largest uh, ship owners. Uh, I think they own uh, together about uh, one thousand and seven hundred 
uh, ships in total. Um, um, uh, on top of that, uh, they also have a large uh, port portfolio overseas, uh, in addition to the shipbuilding assets that uh, you know they operate. Um, so uh, I think you know uh, apparently they will continue to play in a very important role in terms of uh, you know how the uh, shipping market uh, will develop uh, uh, going forward, uh, especially if you look at the you know uh, the container shipping market right now uh, with the um, you know all the uh, sizzling uh, uh, rate, uh, freight markets uh, between uh, China and the West uh, uh, consumer countries. Uh, you know, Costco is definitely one of the leading players in that area. It's not just the uh, the, the the ship owners, of course. I think this year you've written quite extensively, joining the dots between the the, the various players and the the rising dominance of Chinese leasing, of course, uh, but. The yards still there, uh, potentially going to be profiting from a, a green shipping boom coming around the corner as we decarbonize in a, as an industry. And of course, you know, you just mentioned the, the dominance of the Chinese shipping companies. China carrying Chinese cargo financed by Chinese leasing companies and uh, really pushing the Chinese uh, you know, economy forward. That, that really is the, the long term theme of this list, I'd say. Uh, that is true. That is true. Uh, the leasing companies uh, become increasingly important in the ship finance arena. Um, you know, of course, you know, um, uh, various sources, uh, you know, uh, they give uh, different uh, estimates. But uh, I think in the moderate terms, we can say, you know, nowadays the Chinese leasing companies probably contribute 30 percent of the world ship finance. Um, and uh, one, one uh, I think one of uh, the very interesting deals emerged this year is uh, you know the uh, LNG field uh, LR tankers, a dozen of them actually uh, 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 signed between uh, Bonk Kong Leasing and Shell under the time charter agreement. So you know if we're talking about uh, you know uh, the use of, uh, use of LNG as a transition fuel is gaining momentum uh, in future, then you're definitely going to see the Chinese leading companies to be one of the main financiers uh, for those projects. Welcome to the podcast, Anastasios Adamopoulos. Um, you have um, taken the reins on on some of the regulatory coverage for the top 100 this year, uh, as well as uh, writing a few other entries. And I, I really wanted to have a, a quick chat because, you know, we're talking about overall themes for top 100. And last year we saw the IMO very high on the list. Uh, it's gone down this year. Um, give us an idea from your perspective. What, what's the regulatory story as far as you're concerned this year? Well, you're right, Richard. The IMO has gone down this year. And in part, obviously, that reflects other entrants having more significant or more impact this year, um, having made more impactful decisions. But I think it also partly reflects the the inability to resolve the seafaring crisis, which, of course, does not fall on the IMO or any one actor alone, but um, it does reflect poorly on the industry as a whole, mm. uh, arguably. Now, the regulatory story this year remains the environmental issue and specifically emissions and i think when you look at the imo and the regulatory story you have to look at the 
trajectory of the EU as well, because this year, obviously, we have the European Commission and the European Parliament going in at number 10, which is a significant bump up from last year. Mm. The reason for that is the major impetus that exists within the EU to regulate shipping emissions. And we've seen action. We expect more action next year when the Commission unveils its own regulatory proposal to include maritime in the emissions trading system, which is the EU cap and trade scheme. Um, so the regulatory story this year, in, in a nutshell, I would say, is while the IMO has made some important decisions and has approved a new short-term GHG measure, which is an important step, the story is that it's the EU's assent now and we're going into sort of the, the I guess, the culmination of the intense pressure that we've seen over the past year from the EU side on shipping. We will see that culminate next year when the Commission reveals its its proposal. Mm -hmm. So I think we are looking at 2021 where perhaps the most important regulatory decisions come out of the EU when it comes to, to shipping emissions rather than the IMO. And that's the interesting shift. I mean, we are, as a publication, ardent supporters of, of the IMO being a sort of a global consensus, always preferable within a globalised industry like shipping. But fair to say that the IMO has come under some criticism from certain quarters this year for lacking ambition in terms of some of the decisions they've taken. The counter to that and those who would defend the fact that something is better than nothing, of course, uh, you know, point to the consensus politics and, and the way in which the IMO works. But as you say, the the easy stuff has been decided. And we are now looking at a trajectory of IMO debates that are going to get increasingly harder. You know, we yeah. saw this year them not even want to talk about things like market-based measures. That's all still in the pipeline. And mm. they are not easy debates to have. There are still uh, a massive uh, divergence of political uh, opinion on this and very little of this of course is is going to come down to shipping itself um so you know that idea that the uh, the influence of actors like the eu which will <clears throat> excuse me uh, actors like the eu which will be uh, able to affect the debates on a regional basis but have global implications in doing so that's really going to be a very interesting story in the top 100 over the coming years, as you say. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, while we've seen a slight shift in terms of the traditional regulators on this year's list, the emergence of uh, associations, uh, the association, I guess, at the moment, uh, the Global Maritime Forum, which, you know, is at its heart, I guess, a, a loose association of the coalition of the willing. And they're not regulators, but we sort of we we are talking about them in the regulatory capacity because the real influence on this year's list does seem to be coming from that GMF set, that that coalition of the willing from the the financiers, the insurers, the the, the cargo interests that are pushing the agenda at so many levels. Uh, you and I have locked horns about this over the year in terms of where we think that influence is uh, being applied. What, what's your thinking on this? I mean, I think I think you're right. They're definitely the group that has emerged 
I wouldn't say f- perhaps, perhaps arguably faster and more forcefully than, than anyone else really this year. Um, obviously, they weren't um, born this year, but their influence and, and some of the, the, the initiatives that they're taking have become more apparent and more consequential this year. Obviously, they were one of the founders of the, the Sea Cargo Charter in which some of the biggest charters in the tram sector have effectively committed to reporting their emissions and and reporting alignment with uh, the IMO goals, uh, reporting alignment with trajectory with the IMO emission goals. So I do think the sort of the, the group of, of corporations and actors that support the GMF, you know, they have partners, they don't call them members. Um, are definitely some of the more influential in the industry. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they have chosen to partner up in this way, you know, in the structure of the GMF, which is not, not exactly an organization with the classical hierarchical structure that the other maritime organizations have. Mm-hmm. I think that makes them all that more potentially effective because you know, you, you mentioned the, their influence, but we still have to see exactly how that's going to play out over the next couple of years when we start getting, you know, the results of their initiatives, when we start seeing some hard data and whether that's actually going to change any behaviors. But so far, they have been disruptive in that they brought in a new way of working and of, and of developing ideas within the industry. And they have decided not to be members of the IMO, which I think is very, very important because, you know, that means that they don't have a direct regulatory say, but they certainly can move at a faster pace and not be concerned necessarily with whether the IMO gets consensus on an issue. They, they can be a bit more controversial in what they push out um, and definitely a lot more abrupt for what many in the industry would like. Mm. And I, I personally you know welcome that i think is a, it's a it's a very necessary initiative and i think it's interesting to see the influence they're having but you know we have to be clear that we know we're not comparing apples with oranges here and it's unfair to equate the gmf with the more traditional ship owning representative bodies who are you know probably at the base of it a little bit frustrated with the fact that uh, they're probably not making as much noise as uh, they would like uh, in, in comparison to the people like the gmf who are coming in with, uh, as you say, fresh ideas and uh, a disruptive mentality. But of course, uh, the other thing to consider here is that you know, these are big corporations and companies that are very adept at marketing themselves. Um, whereas, you know, of course, governments and civil service and bureaucracies, that's not really their raison d'etre and they are not there to promote what they do. And uh, we need to be careful and mindful that we're not missing some of that and uh, being skewed by the uh, media savvy uh, marketing puff that comes out there. So we will obviously be looking at the tangible uh, deliverables from the, the likes of the GMF, but uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, they are having a real influence in this year's list. Anyway, we will revisit this conversation, no doubt, for next year's list. But for now, Anastasios Adamopoulos, uh, thank you very much for joining the podcast again. Thank you, Richard.